0: following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Now, if you would, friends, I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy in chapter 1 this morning. 1 Timothy in chapter 1. Many of you were here, although there was definitely some new folks, that a few years back we went through all of 1 Timothy chapter by chapter, and so we took the six weeks and we worked our way through 1 Timothy, and it was a both beautiful and long and exhausting journey, mostly for me, but no, actually I think for everyone, because some of those sermons I think averaged around an hour and 20 minutes, hour and 30 minutes, so... Um, I appreciate your patience with me for those of you that were here. But today what I'd like to do is take some time to really dive into just a small section. We're not going to cover all of 1 Timothy. We're not going to really even get through a full chapter. We're just going to dive into a small section talking specifically about the grace that is found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ came... To save sinners. If you'll turn with me, like I said, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be getting in verse 12 and going through verse 17 this morning. Verse 12 through 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. The title for the sermon is Christ Jesus came to save sinners. You'll notice that's probably the heading for... Most of you, if you're using an ESV, and I think even an NASB, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. So what I'd like to do this morning is read all of 1 Timothy chapter 1, and then like I said, we'll really dive into verses 12 through 17 as our text for this morning. It's with great joy then that we hear from our living God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to mist- and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to a service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace. Grace penetrates this text of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. The interesting fact about this text is that grace is only used once in all of it. He says in verse 14, And, by, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It's the only time that we see grace as a word used in verses 12 through 17, and yet this text is all about the grace that had been shown to Paul, the grace that is given to the believer today, the grace that is free to us, which causes, as we see Paul at the end, to, Cry out and worship to the King of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God. Be glory, be honor and glory forever and ever. Grace. Grace being this described as God's loving forgiveness. Giving of what we don't deserve. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve to be counted as fellow heirs with Christ, to be adopted into the body of believers, to be adopted into the family of God. What we deserve, rather, is the wrath of God. What we deserve, rather, is the punishment for our sins. What we deserve is to be cast away from Him for all eternity. For He is perfectly holy, and we are perfectly sinful. And so what we deserve is to be sent away from him. To be cast away in eternal torment. To be under the weight of his justice for all eternity. And yet, what do we see? God's grace. God's grace. He gives us. The mercy to not give us what we deserve and the grace to give us what we don't deserve. This loving forgiveness. And it's with that then that we dive into this text this morning that is just dripping and full of God's grace. What a beautiful gift it is, especially as we think about starting in Matthew, Lord willing, next week. And we see the King and His kingdom and Christ entering into this world and bringing about grace. Showing the grace of God and the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. So as we dive into our text this morning, I invite you to see three points for our study here. First is the praise of Praise for personal grace. The praise for personal grace found in verses 12 through 14. Secondly, we'll see the praise for general grace in verses 15 and 16. And finally, in verse 17, we'll see the praise to God for grace. The praise to God for grace. So we'll see the praise for personal grace. The praise for general grace and the praise for the God who gives grace or the God of grace. So I invite you to hear again these first three verses. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul starts off in his letter to Timothy right here in verse 12 by thanking the right person. He says, thanks to the very source of grace, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice he uses our because he's including Timothy in this as he writes to him. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Bible affirms that Christ and the father are the only sources of grace. We see this happening in John chapter one. I'm going to turn back there. You don't have to join me. John chapter 1 and verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Romans 3 and verse 24. Romans 3 and verse 24. He says, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul starts off his letter rightly. He thanks the right person. And you say, you look at this and you say, but he doesn't say grace yet. He says strength. He's given me strength. Well, Paul goes on to thank God for four aspects of his grace. One, his electing grace. His electing grace. As he says that he has been saved and can call Jesus his Lord. He says, Christ Jesus our Lord that only comes from a saved believer. An enabling grace, he says, he was strengthened. He was strengthened. That's an enabling grace. Number three, an entrusting grace. He was judged him faithful. He says, because he judged me faithful. In verse 12 there. And then an employing grace. He appointed me to his service. Appointing me to his service. Paul knows that God's grace is there for him. And he says, I thank him who has given me strength to Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though he knows where he came from, he wasn't faithful. He knows where he came from, he wasn't worthy of the service of Christ. He knows where he came from. He wasn't worthy to have the strength that comes from grace. He knows where he came from. He wasn't worthy to call upon the Lord Jesus and say, You are my Lord. He knows where he stood. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. I'm going to turn back real quick to Acts chapter 7. Or Acts chapter eight, my apologies, Acts chapter eight. And I just want you to hear these words. So Stephen has been stoned. And in starting in verse eight, and Saul, this man that would become Paul, the apostle, approved of his execution Paul was an opposer of the gospel. Acts chapter 9, it starts off, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked, for him, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. But, but Paul mentions specifically, not that he was just an attacker of the church or that he was one that was counted against the believers, but specific actions that he took. We see those found here. He says, blasphemer. Acts chapter 26 and verse 11, he says, And I punish them often. This is as he's giving his testimony before Agrippa. And he says, and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was a blasphemer. He desired that the people deny the risen Christ. He was a persecutor, as we saw in Acts chapter 8. In verse 3, he said that he was ravaging the church. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, remember he said he he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Acts, in the beginning there, before his conversion, is almost a storyline of his sinfulness. His desire to go against, to be an insolent opponent against the church and against Christ. And so he says, though formally... Prior to his conversion, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. What a conversion story, right? What a conversion story to think that he went from being this blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, to being one that he says, I am thankful for him who has given me strength, the one that I now call Christ Jesus my Lord, the one that has judged me faithful, the one that has appointed me to his service. What an incredible gift that is. Friends, that right there should be transformative for our lives. That alone, that burst right there should just penetrate our hearts and we should look inside and say, it doesn't matter what I've done. The Lord is able to take even the worst, which he will talk about. He'll say he's the foremost of sinners and he'll be able to utilize him. What a beautiful gift that is. Today, if you're a blasphemer, utilizing the Lord's name in vain or taking his word and pulling it out of context to suit your own fancies, we don't always think of that as blaspheming, but it is. It's a form of blasphemy to take the Lord's word and to say, thus says the Lord when that's never what he said. If you're a blasphemer here today, as we all once were prior to salvation, if you are a persecutor, one who is maybe not off killing people, but one that is putting down truth, one that is shaming people for their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, one that is an insolent opponent against the Lord Jesus. Listen, hear, that Christ Jesus, our Lord, has grace that saves. And he can use even your wickedness to bring him glory. As he transforms you then for being strengthened by his grace. Being saved by his grace. Being judged, faithful by his grace being appointed to his service by his grace. None of this comes from within Paul. None of this was a part of Paul. That's what he's getting at. He doesn't say, though formerly I was, but now I've done all these things and I've earned my way. He doesn't look at himself and say, well, yeah, I did all these things, but I'm just so zealous that once I heard Christ, I was super zealous for him and now I'm doing all these things. No, he looks and he says, I am thankful to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gives me the ability to be strengthened, the one that gives me the ability to call him Lord, the one who gives me the ability to be judged faithful, the one who has given me the ability to be appointed to his service. The grace is just dripping from this. He says as he continues, but I received mercy. Translated as you all know, I was mercy. I was shown mercy. I was mercy. Mercy, remember, is different from grace. Grace removes the guilt, while mercy gives freedom from the very misery of that guilt. It frees us from the misery of his guilt. And so as Paul writes this, he can honestly say, "I, I was shown mercy. Because he did feel guilt at the things he had done. That was a part of his salvation story, right? As Christ appears to him, he says, why are you persecuting me? The reality was, is that he realized what he had done. The weight of his sin was upon him. And he was given mercy. Freedom from the misery of the guilt that he was in. But how? How was he, this man who was known, how was he, this man that was known for persecuting the church, how was he to have received mercy because of the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ? And he says, the mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul was not an apostate, someone who had heard the truth and somewhat believed the truth, but then left the truth. He wasn't hardened against the things of God, but rather acted in truly not knowing or understanding. He did not understand what the truth, what the consequences were for his actions. He didn't understand the ramifications of what he was doing. It's like Christ on the cross, as we read in Luke in chapter 23, when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't understand. They're acting in ignorance. Acts, in chapter 3, in verse 17, Peter confirms this, right? He says, And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Acting in ignorance. Paul was responsible for his sin, but received forgiveness. So now the question is, Is put before us as we read this text, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. What about those that act deliberately? Well, God's word says that there can be permanent judgment. This is not to say that we can tell if someone hears the gospel and seems to deny it, reject it, that they are doomed for all eternity, but rather we must acknowledge the reality we must acknowledge the facts that God's word is clear. Hebrews 10 and verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What a reality. Paul is saying not that he was free from the guilt of, for he says I was mercied. Not that he was in dire or that he wasn't in need of God's grace, for he says I was saved by Christ Jesus our Lord. But he says, I was acting in ignorance. I was acting ignorantly in unbelief. And God showed him mercy. Let this drive us to bring the gospel, to bring the truth to everyone. As we prayed earlier, one of the things that's been on my heart, especially as I was preparing this morning, I was thinking about the fact of just the reality of day to day we go by hundreds of people. You drive your car down the street and you go by hundreds, maybe thousands of people day in and day out. Now granted, I'm Not saying you should jump in front of their cars and bring them the gospel, but there is a sense in which we go by hundreds and thousands of people and yet we don't even pray for them. We go by people in our day-to-day lives and we fail to share the gospel. Fear of persecution, fear of being shut out, fear of repercussions, fear of loss of family or friends. We're living in a moment of almost fear. But let this be a driving factor for us. When we look upon others, our desire should not be to say, well, maybe if they act in unbelief, then they can receive mercy and grace. But rather we should say, no, no because they don't know we must tell them because they're only going to be saved by the grace and how does that come but by the hearing of the gospel friends how important it is for us let this be a driving factor not a not a factor of us saying well i've told somebody the gospel and now they're still sinning they don't seem to care no, let, us, let, let, let that be a driving factor that we bring the gospel in complete truth and the wholeness of the text day in and day out. Keep plugging it away. Just keep going at it because that is what we have been called to on the Great Commission and because we desire to see them not act ignorantly in unbelief, but rather to know the truth of the gospel, to know the truth of the grace that is found in Christ, the personal grace that comes Through salvation. And as he continues in verse 14, he says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. As I mentioned earlier in the text, or in in the, the sermon, grace only appears here in verse 14. However, this whole passage is built around the grace of God. He says, The grace of the Lord overflowed. Paul's abundance of sin being a blasphemer being a persecutor, being an insolent opponent was met by the ever-supplying grace of the Lord which overflowed to meet his need. It's not like God gave him just enough that he needed for salvation or just enough to get to this point that he could then do the rest. No, God poured out in abundance, overflowed with grace for him. And so God is able to meet Us where we are in our sin, not just to the minimum, but to the maximum. He didn't just save us up to the point where our salvation came and that was the only sins he was covering. No, he covered us. He'd preserve us to the very end. How incredible is that for us. What dire straits we would be if God saved us and then said, Well, you better not sin anymore, because that was the only amount of grace you're getting what dire straits we would be in. We'd be like the women crying out, may the mountains fall upon us. May the hills cover us. No, His grace is sufficient to meet all our needs. And with this grace came faith and love, which come from Christ Jesus. As we affirm salvation And saving faith is not by us. It's a gift from God. It's God's grace for Ephesians chapter 2, as you read earlier, said, for you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. But what we see is that that faith, that saving faith and love are linked with salvation. It's like a package deal that comes with salvation. He doesn't just give you salvation. He gives you the faith. He doesn't just give you salvation, He gives you the love for Him, for the love of the things of God. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to turn there real quick. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Faith and love. Chapter 3 and verse 17 of Ephesians again so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Faith and love being a part of the salvation package. Colossians chapter 1. We see a similar story here. Watch. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, Remembering before God and our Father, Your work of faith and labor of love. Faith and love are natural outworkings of the salvific work that has happened in your life. Friends, this is a reality for us. That faith and love are a natural part of our salvation. They just come with it. Every time, or not every time, but frequently throughout the scriptures that God talks about salvation. He talks about faith and love being a part of those. A true Christian continues in faith and love. Grace brings salvation, and with it brings love and faith to accompany it. Those are just natural outworkings of the salvation that we receive. And so Paul here is praising the God for this personal grace, and it's the same personal grace that we can then praise God for, because we can all say we were once blasphemers, we were persecutors, we were insolent opponents, and yet Christ Jesus, our Lord, gave us strength. He judged us faithful. He's appointed us to service, each of us having a different service, not all of us being in the worship leading as our brother Tony does, not all of us being up in front in the sense of proclaiming God's word or preaching God's word, but each and every one of us is called to service. And that service is different, whether that's hospitality, encouragement, edification, love. Friends, we are all called into a service, and so there's this personal grace that saves us and then calls us into this ministry. And we can then say, but we have received mercy because we acted at one point ignorantly in unbelief, but the grace of God overflowed. With love and faith in Christ Jesus. And now, turning our attention to verses 15 and 16, we see the praise for general grace. And Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul is, in a way, contradicting what he had seen in other people earlier on in the passage. He says, there's these other men who have been charged to teach, not teach any different doctrine in order to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And he says, no, here's something that you can hold on to. Here's something you can sink your teeth into and you know is true. The saying is trustworthy. This is a term that we only find in the pastoral epistles. We find it here. We find it also in, just in 1 Timothy alone. In chapter 3 and verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. Talking about the role of overseer. In chapter 4 and verse 9, he says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. When he's speaking about being a good servant of Christ Jesus. It's a familiar statement as he says this. This is something that Timothy and any reader of this would have known at the time. And he says the saying is trustworthy. What you've heard said is worthy of trust. You can put your faith in this. You can sink your teeth into it and you can know it is true. He says it's deserving of full acceptance. Don't you hold back on this. Don't you just take a piece of this. Don't you just try and nitpick what you want from it. But he says, no, this saying is trustworthy and true and it is worthy of full acceptance. And what does he go on to do he goes on in this verse to give a quick breakdown, a condensed version of the very gospel message. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Talk about a beautiful gospel message right there. Christ, we're just going to break this down. Christ the anointed King who came to redeem Jesus, the earthly incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Christ Jesus. What happened? He came into the world. Came not only an in incarnate not only incarnation, but pre existence. Notice he doesn't say that he came into existence, or he doesn't say that he was created, but he came. That points to the very fact that he existed elsewhere. Before that, it's as we read from John chapter 1 when we opened up this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Christ Jesus, He came into the world. He didn't come into the universe, He didn't come into a faraway galaxy. He came into the world, this world, the earth, this place where humanity dwells. These people who were condemned to hell. Place of sinners and darkness and unbelief. Christ Jesus entered into that. And what was his purpose? To save sinners. To save, to deliver from darkness and death. Sinners, a term used by the Jews to refer to Gentiles. One that would be pointed at them and say, ah, those are the sinners because they don't believe in Yahweh, the God the true God. But our Lord, he said, this is all of man. You are all sinners, including us here today. The saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners let that penetrate your hearts. Let that just dive deep into your hearts and root out any disbelief or unbelief. At any point that you question, any piece of that, let that just dive into your heart and say, no, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The anointed king, the redeemer, the second person of the Trinity, the son came he entered into, he didn't get created, he didn't suddenly come into existence, but no, he came into the world, this place where we dwell today, filled with, sadly, much of what he saw, sin and darkness and unbelief. And what, what was the reason to save sinners like you and like me? Paul continues and he says, of whom I am the foremost. Paul saw himself as the foremost of sinners. As I was working through our commentary on this passage, it was just kind of recalled the reality of how different this is from our world today. I was telling my wife I saw a video the other day, just of a someone refuting a, and I'm going to use this with a lot of, uh, we'll just do air quotes around it, progressive Christian pastor. All things that are never meant to go together, right? A bunch of words that should never be said together. Progressive, Christian, pastor, those things are just not meant to be together. Those are all individually okay things in and of themselves, but together it's just it doesn't go. And what he was saying was just painful to hear. Supporting all kinds of sinful acts. Supporting gay marriage transgenderism affirming that abortion should be available quote right for people and saying that he was not only that uh, but he would say he was a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ what a shame huh? what a shame how dare he and so he would look out on people, and he would say, "Don't worry what the Bible says. Don't worry what is clearly written in God's word." He would say, "You're not the foremost of sinner. You're not a sinner at all. You're just a person in desperate need of the love that God has for just everything and everyone." He even affirmed that he doesn't believe in hell. Because who would go there? Universalism, right? The belief that everyone will one day make it to heaven somehow. And you hear something like this from a man like that in our society today. And we see this. It's not just him. It's not just this Pastor Robertson or whatever his name was. This is happening all over the place. Our society is plagued with the reality of people saying day in and day out, don't change a thing. You are perfect. You don't need anything else. You're great just the way you are. Your sin, just go on and live it because it's fine. God forgives. That's fine. Just go on. Obviously, no one ever read Paul's letter here because Paul looked upon himself and he said, Not even with some of these other sins. And he said, of whom I am the foremost. Friends, that should be us. Sure, you may not have killed anyone today. But boy, have you murdered in your hearts. Maybe you haven't used the Lord's name in vain or taken his word out of context. But boy, have you. When you were living in your sinful nature. Living in the freedom of your sin as you thought it was. What a change this is, right? Paul says, I am the foremost. Friends, may we all see ourselves that way. May we all acknowledge the reality of the gravity of our sin. And may that drive us to then say, of whom I am the foremost. But God showed me grace and mercy. And may that then just lead us to an even deeper and stronger and more glorious praise of the one who saves. Paul continues and he says, but I received mercy for this reason. God saved him, both from the punishment that was his and also though for another very important reason. And it wasn't just that he might go out and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It wasn't that he might just be free to stop persecuting the church. No, it it wasn't just that. He says this, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God's grace His grace to his people to show. To show his perfect patience. It was God's grace and power and patience that would be on display before all people. It was for God's glory. By saving Paul, Christ displayed his perfect patience. A patience with the very worst of sinners, as he said. I'm the foremost. And yet... Christ was so kind, so patient, as to not just strike him dead in the very moment that he came across him. He He could have killed him at any moment. He could have taken his life and said, no more, I am done. But in his perfect patience, he waited and he called him out from darkness and into light, from wrath into righteousness, Paul was proof. He was like a proof text, a good one. An example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, the Lord Jesus Christ. They could look upon Paul and they'd say, I remember that guy. That's why the church was so afraid, right? Ananias, when he gets called to go to Paul, says, I don't want to go. I heard that guy. He's mean. He's evil. He's killing people. I don't want to get killed. The church challenges Paul and they say, I don't know. Would God really call this man Saul? Would you really save him? The one who has been killing Christians and locking them up and persecuting them so strictly? It's because Paul was so awful that Christ saved him that others could look and say, this guy is able to save anyone. This Lord, the Savior, is able to save anyone. He's even able to save the one who so many feared. He's able to call him out of darkness and into light. Christ's patience was perfectly on display in Paul. The reality is, friends, is that as believers, if you are indeed a believer here today, Christ's patience is perfectly on display in you. I don't want to just take this text and make it all about you, but the reality is is that God's grace, the grace that saved Paul, is the same grace that saves you today. And it's this perfect patience that is there as an example to all those who would come to believe in him the Lord Jesus, for eternal life. May we be a perfect example of that. And we come to our final verse here. Praise to God for grace, the final point for today. And in verse 17, Paul writes, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be glory forever. Sorry, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We come to this beautiful doxology. John Calvin wrote about this and he said his enthusiasm breaks out into this exclamation. Since he could find no words to express his gratitude, these sudden outbursts of Paul come mainly when the vastness of the subject overpowers him and makes him break, break off what he is saying. For what could be more wonderful than Paul's conversion? At the same time, he admonishes us, admonishes us all by his example that we should never think of the grace shown in God's calling without being lost in wondering admiration. The sublime praise of God's grace swallows up all the memory of his former life. How great a deep and deep is the glory of God. How great a deep is the glory of God. This is I read that and reminds me of the reality, just rereading that little section right there it says at the same time he admonishes us all by his example that we should never think of the grace shown in God's calling without being lost in wondering admiration. Wondering admiration. As Paul closes out this small section, obviously of a much larger letter, it's like he breaks out. He's in the midst of a text. He's writing about the grace of God and the salvation that he's received and the salvation that was on perfect example of God's patience for the people that would come to believe. And it's like he stops and he says to the king of the ages, I have to give you glory and honor because I am undeserving. It's as he writes this, it's like he's thinking to himself, how unworthy am I to even write this letter? So to him be glory, to him be honor. Oh, friends, what a glorious reality for us. And we see Paul refer to, he gives kind of four designations for God. He says he's the king of ages. To the king of the ages, he's a sovereign God who governs every age, every piece of creation from the beginning of time, from before time began even, to the final age and into the eternity. He is the king of the ages. He's immortal. He's not subject to death or destruction He's imperishable and incorruptible. Immortal. He's invisible. Not seen with the eye. 1 Timothy 6.16 He says he dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Only outside of the incarnate Christ people have only seen glimpses of his glory. And yet... God's glory is on display in all that we see. And he says he is the only God. Isaiah 45, 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the Lord and there is no other. He is the only God. Let no one confuse you. Let no one confuse you call you to some other belief or some other faith or some other thoughts. He is the only God. Our triune God is the only God. Many will go about saying that they believe in this or that, believing in some false religions, believing in some false faiths, some religious practices, Even believing in Christ, but not really Christ. We think of easy examples like Jehovah's Witness or Mormons, but even progressive Christian pastors that preach such things as continue on in sin. You're not believing in the true God, the God of Isaiah 45, that says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And it's to this God, the one who is the king of the ages, the mortal, invisible, the only God, that he closes out by saying, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our true desire should be to bring him honor and glory forever and ever. Friends, as we close our text this morning, I just want to encourage you as we read in here the saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you are not a believer here the reality is is that you are sitting under the wrath of God. It's only by his mercy that he has allowed you to breathe at this very moment. As we talked about with Saul, it was only by God's mercy that he allowed him to continue until his salvation. It's only by God's mercy that you are here, that you can hear the word of God being proclaimed to you. Friends, Jesus Christ the only Savior came into this world to save sinners. He was born of a virgin. He lived the perfect, sinless, obedient life that you do not. Not that you cannot, but you do not also. You have no ability to and you do not do it. There's no possible way for you to do it and you don't. He lived that perfect, obedient life on your behalf. What should happen for him, what should happen for Christ is that he is exalted forevermore. No hardship, no troubles. But no, he was persecuted. He was sent to carry a cross up a hill where he'd be then nailed to it. Being ridiculed and mocked and beaten along the way. He'd be hung upon that cross, hoisted up to die. And in so doing, the wrath of God was poured upon him as many of you know and as I encourage you to hear, the physical torture of the crucifixion was only a piece. It was only a piece of what happened. It wasn't as simple as just dying. It wasn't as simple as just being crucified. This shameful, shameful death. No, the wrath of God was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the sins of those that he would call and elect and save. And he died on that cross. He was taken down and he was buried. And on the third day, in all glory, he rose from the dead because death could not hold him. And it is through belief in this Savior that came to this earth, that lived a perfect sinless life, that died on a cross, that was buried and is risen now, and reigns from heaven. It is through belief in him that you too might be saved. Repent today of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the only salvation that you have, the only option. Don't let anybody confuse you. Don't let them... Get you twisted up with different doctrines or myths or genealogies. Don't let them get you off into some kind of speculations or anything else. There's only one means of salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you cannot make it on your own. There is no means for you to save yourselves. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how many nice things you've done today or this lifetime. You can never do it. And so I invite you, believer, unbeliever, throw yourselves before the God who saves. Throw yourselves before Christ Jesus, our Lord, for he is faithful to save.